Good morning, guys. I'm going to jump in a little early. Get you tied up. Um, so, uh, thanks for being here. I know we were kind of tentative, but um, Tony was uh, very gracious, able to move some things around, and we were going to have him in next semester and um, move up to go ahead and, and talk. And it, uh, it really dovetails well with uh, the talk that Crawford gave a few weeks ago around uh, uh, manhood and, and purity. Um, so uh, what we have is we have a video we're going to go ahead and queue up and show, and then Tony's going to go into it. I'll just go ahead and, and do a, a quick intro. Um, Tony Isles has been with uh, Fellowship for a while. Um, he is one of the leaders of, of Walking Free, which I, I put a little uh, blurb in the, the email this last weekend. But um, A, just great guy, great heart for men like us. Um, to to grow in the freedom that we have available for us in in Christ, and so a lot of what he's going to talk about today pertains to um, the sexual aspect of ourselves and finding freedom in that. But don't let that limit you to just thinking in terms of your sexuality. It's really the broader issue of the freedom that we have in Christ across the board and the ongoing sanctification that God wants for us um, to grow in Christ. So um, we'll go ahead and queue it up, and uh, we'll go from there. Good, Dennis. At some point, all of us find ourselves at a fork in the road in our spiritual lives. Suddenly you find yourself staring down two paths, two distinctly different paths. One says pleasing God, the other says trusting God. You look at the trusting God sign, you think it sounds good except it doesn't give me a whole lot to do. It's too passive. It's like, uh, if we're going to do this Christian life, I mean, really do it, then, then we're going to have to have a little bit something more than just trust, right? So you look back at the pleasing God sign. Now, now that makes sense, right? I mean, because after all he's done for us, the least we can do is please him. So this path leads to the room of good intentions. Oh, man, it is is an impressive room. My golly, with impressive people, passionate people. You're surprised to see that everyone in this room is wearing masks, but they are immaculate and beautiful, like the mask they hand to you. Everyone here is doing just fine. Everyone's serious about working on their sin and on their disciplines and trying to keep God pleased with them. There's an unspoken message in this room. God loves you always, but he likes you a lot less when you mess up. Still, you join this impressive group of people in this impressive room. And, and really, for the most part, um, you actually uh, are, are coming up to standard on most days. 
I mean, really, you're, you're, you're doing okay. It's like you remember uh, to read your Bible, you pray for others, and you're even reading a couple of chapters in that book that everybody's raving about. God's, God's uh, glad that you're doing your to-do list. He's not happy about your thoughts, though. He's disappointed that. If you were serious about your sin, you, you, you would fix that. After a while, you, you realize nobody in this room really knows you. They know your mask, but they don't know what you look like behind the mask. They don't know that you're struggling. They don't know that in spite of all your passionate sincerity, you don't believe that you really have pleased God for a minute of your life. You're exhausted bluffing and faking like you have it together. And so one night when nobody's looking, you slip out the back, bone tired and dejected and disillusioned. You walk out onto the path until you hit the fork in the road again. Trusting God. Well, if there's no other option and you find yourself out on the path that leads to the room of grace, <laughs> it's a lot less impressive room, but it is infinitely more inviting. Oh, you are welcomed into this loud conversation and there are sincere smiles. Oh. My, there's not a mass to be seen anywhere. The people in this room, they are messy, but honest. They, they tell each other the truth about themselves and what they're struggling with, and nobody's trying to pretend like they've got it all together. There's, there's a silent message in this room too. It says, God is delighted with you, wild about you regardless of how you behave. The people in this room actually seem to believe that God loves them and likes them all the time, even when they mess up. After a while in this room, you find yourself slowly starting to tell the truth about yourself and the things you struggle with, and you are shocked to discover that God is right here in the midst of it his arm tightly around you, loving you, enjoying you. He smiles at you and he says, <laughs> you know, I really am big enough to handle your stuff, all of it. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't shock me. It never comes between you and me. I am crazy in love with you on your very worst day. Now listen to me. I just want you to trust me with who I say you are. And I want you to learn to let other people love you with all your stuff. It will free you to love like crazy because you will have experienced being loved.
Thank you, Tony. Good morning, guys. Wow, powerful video, right? Um, there, there's part of me that wishes I had heard that video sooner in my life. Um, but then again, it was God's timing when I, you know, when it happens, because typically we think, well, that's not me, right? And I don't have that issue or I don't have that challenge. Um, at least that was me. But so I've been married for 32 years. Um, I have a gracious, um, wonderful wife. Um, I have three adult children who have graced me with three grandsons and one granddaughter, which is amazing. So life today is really, really good. Unfortunately, it wasn't always like that. Um, you see, on October the 13th of 2009, um, my wife received an email from someone that we still don't know to this day with a picture of a profile I was using to meet women online. As she describes it, um, that's the day that our two worlds came crashing together. The world that she lived in and the world that I lived in, which was one full of lies, deception, and betrayal. Um, so the question is, how did, how did I get to that point? Um, this is like year 24 of our marriage. And it, it really, it started growing up. Um, I grew up in the church, Episcopal Church, and my God at that point was a God of reward and punishment. Do things good, get rewarded. Not do things so well, get punished. So I spent a lot of my time trying to be really, really good <laughs> um, in everything. Excelled in school, excelled in sports, um, excelled in whatever was placed in front of me. And when things didn't work out so well, I didn't share those. Those I kept, I tried to minimize, I tried to justify, um, rationalize them away, and, and hide them, kind of tuck them away. And, and I began to live a life kind of guided by three kind of principles. One was control, another one was pride, and the last one was denial. And that's kind of how I spent most of my life. You see, I kept those things secret, the things I struggled with, and because of those anxieties that I had about, wow, people could really find out who I really am because I had this persona out there that I was this confident, you know, successful kind of guy, but inside, I was full of fear and anxiety. And, and if people really knew what was going on inside, they would be like, I want to stay as far away from that guy as possible. So I had to keep all of that stuff hidden because, you know, I truly believed if you really knew me that you wouldn't love me, that you, wouldn't, that you would reject me. And I, I even treated God that way, <laughs> the same way, you know, that even though he really knew me, I pretended like, you know, if he, does, he doesn't know about these things over here. And as long as I keep those secret, my life will be great. So I lived mostly a pretending life. But underneath all that was anxiety driven by the fear of being found out. 
and I used um, early on, and I don't know about you guys, but discover masturbation. And masturbation actually was kind of a soothing thing for me. And, and I used that quite regularly to kind of what I'll call medicate my feelings of anxiety because for a momentary period it would, I would feel okay. And it was kind of what I used to comfort myself. The challenge was there's a lot of shame associated with that. I couldn't tell anybody that that's what I struggle with and that's what I used. I can't go and say, yeah, I got a headache, you know, so I take aspirins. You know, oh, I got anxiety, so I go, no, I don't, I don't go there. I don't talk about those things. I met my wife in college. Um, and, you know, at some point along the way, we decided that, yes, this is, God wants us to be together. And I, used, I started going to church with her, and her God was different than my God. Her God was a personal God, somebody that you could actually have a conversation with. And that kind of, um, and I'm still living this double life, right? My wife knows nothing about my stuff. And there were several times during that first year or so that God was calling me to the altar to kind of surrender everything. And there was this pride in me that I've been in church all my life. I know God, and I don't need to walk up there and surrender any of this stuff. So I didn't. And so I kept all of that stuff inside, not only, you know, not surrendering, you know, my life to him fully, but, but also keeping this other stuff hidden. So it didn't give me the courage to even share with my wife what I struggled with, feeling that that'll go away once I get married, right? Because I'll have, you know, free reign at that point. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, so if we flash forward to 2004, well, 2006 actually was the, the pivotal moment. So we're, we're at year like 21. I've got three kids, you know, rising in the company, doing all the successful, um, working in the church. I mean, I was Sunday school teacher, um, youth group leader at our church, um, discipleship leader, leading people through the Bible for 34 weeks, you know. Um, but what was going on in the background was continued escape because there was still this underlying anxiety and fear that I had. And it began to build because I went to China um, on a work assignment and I kind of left my family for about a year and four months. And I felt very isolated. Um, I felt guilty. Um, and a lot of time to myself in a country that I didn't speak the full language. And I found internet pornography at that point. From 2006 to 2009, I mean, it went like, you know, you talk, talk about the logarithmic curve, right? Asymptotic. Uh, I went from masturbation, pornography, to chat rooms, to watching videos, to paying for stuff, to meeting women, and eventually having several... Um, anonymous adulterous affairs um, on my wife. You know, and you'd, you'd argue, where was God during all of this, right? Um, I kept him at a distance on this stuff. Um, I had been in a, a men's group, you know, meeting in a, on a Thursday night for, from like 04, so five years, five years meeting with these guys, sharing life together, never once mentioning my struggle. Not once. I even sat in a room like this um, 
with guys on a four-day weekend um, retreat, and a guy like me got up here in front of all of us, and I'm sitting there, and he starts to share his story and his struggle and about this ministry that he started called Shoulder to Shoulder Ministries about men. And I said nothing to anyone about my struggle. Why? Fear. Shame. You know, Satan had me believing the lie that, that if you really knew what was going on in my heart, that you would reject me. And so I kept it hidden, even then. Um, there's a lot of me that wishes I had kind of brought that out at that point. But it wasn't until, even after all of my stuff came out, you know, in October of 09, you know, entered counseling, had relapses. I started a recovery group, I had relapses, you know. And it wasn't until um, February of 2011 that I have found myself at the Johnny Hunt Men's Conference. And he's talking about cleaning out the closet, you know, you know that dark room way down in the basement, you know, that's behind the bookshelf and you know, the stuff that you keep in there that nobody knows about. Um, that all needs to come out. And God called me to the altar that night. And this time I went because I was like done at that point. Um, and I surrendered everything. I surrendered my heart. I surrendered my life. It wasn't just that Jesus, you know, at that point became the Lord of my life, not just my Savior. Right? And, and I walked into my therapist's office and I said, whatever it takes. And she said, wow, that's great. I've been waiting to hear that for almost 18 months. And God took me on an amazing journey of authenticity um, in, in life in general, not just in my spiritual life with, with God, but just in general with other men. Led me to the ministries where I could sit in groups of guys like this and really share what was going on in my heart. Um, not just my struggle with, you know, with, with sex and things, but my struggle with fear, because that's really what was underneath all of this stuff was anxiety and fear. You know, fear of being found out, fear that you wouldn't really like me if you knew that I got angry or that, um, that you know, standing back there waiting to come up here, man, it's like the inside's going like crazy. And I said, geez, do I really want to get up here and talk to these guys? You know, being honest about what I'm feeling and what's, what, you know, what's going on in my heart so God kind of redeemed me, and he showed me a grace through, the, through the, the actions of my wife, as well as through the actions of many men that I sat with. And it wasn't just a, a saving grace, you know, the forgiveness part of grace, but it was this transforming grace, the power of grace that can take your desires and just change them. And he, and he transformed me into what I, I, Tony's heard me say this before, but I have, a new, I have a new want to in life. You know, it's I want to please God. I want to be honest. I want to share with, with other guys. And I want other people to, to know what, what and feel what I felt. I mean, for most of my life, like I said, I spent it isolated in a way. And um, God's given, you know, me opportunities to share my story, to s sit in groups like this with guys and share our hearts and what God is doing in our lives. Um, our marriage, you know, my wife will tell you we're, you know, seven years into our second marriage. Um, and it's the marriage that we always dreamed that we thought we would have. Um, totally different from what it was before. I mean, that marriage, the old marriage had to die, and this new marriage was birthed out of that. And the Lord's blessed us with an opportunity to, to share in our 
our marriage ministry at our church. Um, so it's just, it's been an amazing ride. Um, and, and we have such an amazing God that, uh, that I don't want you guys to miss out on that. You know, I don't want you to, to, to be sitting there today saying, man, I am, if, if you really knew what was going on in my life right now, you know, you'd go screaming and running out the door. We won't. God won't. He already knows about all that stuff. And he wants it redeemed. He wants, it, he wants to be able to take that, that loss, that shame, that guilt, all of that stuff, and he wants to transform it you know, into something that's glorious. And, and I'm not glorious, but he is. And I get to reflect him to other people. And that's just an amazing thing that, uh, that I don't want to take too lightly. So I want to thank you guys for listening to me this morning. Um, and I'm going to invite Tony up to, to finish with the teaching, but I think we'll be available for, for Q&A afterwards. So thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, Steve. <clears throat> if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And God's disappointed in me. God's disappointed in, in, in me when I sin, and he likes me less when I sin. Are kind of some of the themes that, that we hear a lot. And that as much as many of us who love Jesus and want to live a life um, rooted in Christ, a lot of us really struggle deep down inside as men with feeling alone and really feeling that God is uniquely disappointed in me and that if I really love Jesus, I wouldn't sin the way I sin, whatever that sin looks like. <clears throat> so Crawford came and spoke a couple weeks ago, right? As I understand it with you all at this very, very early hour. And I went through Institute previously, and I told Bob, you've not seen me at Fellowship at this early hour since my last day at Institute. Um, but it's really good to be here with you guys and uh, to be able to talk with you. It's really a great honor. But a couple weeks ago, um, Crawford talked about David and Bathsheba, right? And uh, David's very public sin that he went through. It is recorded, and um, you know, we at Walking Free walk with a lot of guys who have sinned in a lot of ways and done a lot of really um, um, inappropriate stuff. I've yet to walk with a guy who uh, it, is at Walking Free who has gone into their sin so deeply that they decided murder and cover up and uh, all of that would be their most logical, appropriate next course of action. And yet David is told to us that he was the man after God's own heart. Um, so I want to dive in just a little bit into a couple different things. But one thing I want to visit on a little bit is why did David do what he did? Why, why did David pursue Bathsheba 
the way he did? What, what motivated him? Anyone want to hazard a, a guess publicly? Why? Why? We know what David did. We know the outcome. But what really drove David's actions? It is maybe a trick question. I may have an answer that I propose, but okay. We'll just dive right into what I'm going to say as the answer. So um, why did he do that? Was, was it just pride? Was it just power? Was it like all the men that we see on the news? It seems like every day, the last few months, it seems like another major public figure, sex scandal, inappropriate behavior, you name it, whether it's politics or media, it just, at least to me, seems like every day you open the news and there's somebody new, right? Is it just the power? Is it, is it just the income level and the the famousness and the money that drives that behavior, or was there something deeper going on in David that drove his behavior? I think a lot of it is kind of outlined in uh, 1 Samuel 16.11, right? Um, in the 1 Samuel 16.11, this is where... Um, Basically, uh, the new king of Israel is being picked, right? And so Jesse's there. And uh, it's an interesting story to me because, uh, you know, there's a couple different ways that you can read it with some different ramifications. But here we have uh, the situation uh, where Samuel is picking, right, the the new king of Israel. and, And so he goes into Bethlehem and... And uh, the Lord tells him, well, you know, uh, make a sacrifice, bring, bring a heifer, make a sacrifice, and, and invite Jesse and his sons there. And then it'll be among Jesse's sons that, that will be the next king. And bear in mind, you know, the scripture tells us that he was such a powerful prophet that when he did that, when he was just entering the city, uh, the elders of the city came to him trembling. He, w- he was that powerful and that impactful the, the elders of the city would come to him trembling and say, why are you here? What the heck? What are you up to? Are, are you here peacefully or, or are you the fire and brimstone? What, what's happening? Why are you here? That, he had that kind of weight and power. And he says, no, I'm, I'm here peacefully. So the, uh, you know, they go to do the sacrifice and, and the festival and, um, and all of that. And uh, Jesse is told, bring your sons here. And what, is, what does Jesse do in that story? Right? He brings, he brings seven of his sons, prays them one at a time. Surely this guy, the oldest guy, the tallest guy, whatever, this is the guy that's going to be the next king, right? This is the guy that the Lord's chosen. And he's like, nope, not him. Not him. Not him. Goes through all the, all the boys, right? And then we get to the part in uh, verse 11, where, um, you know, I need to get a Bible with bigger print, it seems, of late. I, it's one of the things I'm noticing. I used to be able to read this a lot better. But, uh, you know, and then verse 11 says, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. <clears throat> so, it's interesting to me, that little verse, that one word, the littlest, 
in verse 11, what does that word really mean? Was, was it just that David was too little? He's just too young. He's five years old, seven years old, whatever age he is. He's just a little boy, so okay, no, we're not going to bother to have him in. Or was something more going on that, uh, that speaks a little bit deeper into the dynamic? Because here we have uh, Samuel, who's such a powerful prophet, that the, the elders of the, at the city gates tremble. Jesse's told to bring his sons, and yet David isn't invited literally to the party. So if you dive into the Hebrew of what the word in English is translated as, you know, the, uh, the smallest or littlest, um, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but it's actually, a, uh, the Hebrew word is uh, hakaton, is the word. <clears throat> and when you dive into what that word means, it does mean small, little, but it also has this connotation of uh, uselessness, of unimportance, of not, not of great value. So, it's interesting to me in this dynamic when, when the new king of Israel is being selected that, that David by his father was basically said, he's not really worth it. He's, he's out in the field. Why would I go fetch him? to this grand party because he's clearly not going to be uh, the next king. So, why does David's childhood matter to any of us sitting here at Fellowship Institute? Who cares, really, right? I mean, that was a long time ago. Why does it matter? And what's the impact for us? So, I'm going to I'm going to come back to that question in a moment, but it's something for you to to ponder for a moment. Why does it matter why David did what he did, and what does it mean for us, if anything? So, um, as Scott said, we, we run the Walking Free Ministry here at Fellowship, and it's a great honor for us to be able to walk with men in one of the most difficult areas of life that have the most shame associated with it, where they have the most difficulty letting people in, and the most difficulty finding freedom, and the most difficulty understanding what the word surrender means, and how to live out of a surrendered sexuality. Most of us want to uh, surrender most to Jesus. Most of us want to live a life dedicated to Christ, Bible study, scripture memorization, service, giving, tithing, uh, worship, all of that. <clears throat> but you, then you tell a man to surrender his sexuality. Okay, well, hang on. That's, that's a bit much, really, you know, to do that. How about I surrender everything else, but let me keep my sexuality? So when it comes to sexual sin, uh, most of us just don't want to talk about it. We just like, no, nope. you know, kind of like Steve said, we'll sit in a room full of guys. We're not going to talk about what's really going on or what our past is really showing us and the patterns that are in our life. We're not really going to talk about it. We're going to instead uh, pray it away. We're going to spiritualize it. We're going to pray it away in the solitude of our own heart and life. We're not going to invite anybody in. Um, We're definitely not going to talk about it. And we are going to definitely try harder. We are going to try, 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 and try some more, and try harder, and try harder, and try harder to affect change. 
And we really are not going to tell anybody about this at all. Whatever, whatever that sexual uh, struggle is, whatever that unsurrendered sexuality is in our life, we're definitely not going to tell anybody about that. We will talk about anything else. We'll talk sports. We'll talk football. We'll talk uh, raising kids. We'll talk marriage. We'll talk finances. But we're not going to talk about that. It's kind of like sometimes in some men's groups, just a silent code that we all understand. We're just not going to talk about that right now. So, and for some guys, the struggle is, is such a pattern, it, it's hard to see. Some guys, that pattern is blatantly obvious. It's an everyday event, a couple times a day event. It's a, you know, two, three times a week event. It's a, it's a once a month event. But then other guys, it's a, it's a six month event. It's a one year event. Um, it, it's a pattern that sometimes guys have a difficulty recognizing a pattern going on in their heart. And particularly if you don't talk about it, then it's really easy to not dive into what the pattern is. Because we don't talk about it, we really get to live in denial, and we can live a life devoted to Christ while really denying our spiritual reality of where we are in the depths of our heart. Because one thing I, I do know and that we see is that there is a huge connection between the authentic transformative life we have in Christ and to the level which our sexuality is surrendered to Christ. There is a huge connection for men particularly of the um, closeness of our intimacy with God tied to the closeness of our ability and willingness to surrender our sexuality to God. And a lot of times we really want to have that closeness with God without having to um, surrender our sexuality to him. So we struggle, many of us, silently and quietly, and it, uh, um, we really want to genuinely find change, right? And so this is a special kind of quandary for a guy who has accepted Christ, because here on one hand, we're, we're the found, right? We're the saved, we're the found, we're the transformed, so on one hand, we are in Christ, and yet on the other hand, we've got this whole other stuff going on in our heart and life, either in our thought life, in our heart, or evidencing itself in behaviors that we never thought would be part of our story. So it can be anywhere on that spectrum, from behaviors realized to maybe it's just our thought life that we deeply struggle with. And it reminds me of a, um, that, that, uh, that conflict, right? Uh, reminds me of a verse in uh, Romans. It's Romans 7, 17 through 25, that I'm going to read, and I don't often do this. I'm actually, um, actually going to read the message version of this, which uh, this is about the only uh, verse from the message you'll hear me quote, but I particularly like how the message translates it because it gives words that we've probably read a lot and know, it gives it a new perspective. And, and this is where Paul's talking about, um, I know what I should do, but I don't do it, right? I know what's right, but I just can't do it. I, I want to do it, but I'm just not doing it. <clears throat> and so he has some language that he uses in Romans that I think 
highlights this conflict that we can often feel inside our hearts, particularly in the area of men struggling with surrendering their sexuality. So, Romans 7, 17-25. It says, But I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly rebels, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. Excuse me. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Is there no one that can do anything for me? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Excuse me. So I think I like how that version translates it because it really highlights the conflict that a lot of us feel in our hearts of wanting to do one thing but doing something totally different and really not knowing how do I find freedom. And is freedom even possible? At the age and stage of life that all of us are basically in, the men who really struggled in this area, many of them have already come to the conclusion that Um, this is just who I am. I struggle in this way. I just have to hide it. I can't let anybody know. I've tried all I can do. I resign myself, and I just, I give up. I'm just going to hide who I am. Which is why, right now, sexual sin is probably the number one issue facing the church right now. Right, um, and statistics prove this out. Most of the studies out there would show that sixty percent of the men who are evangelical Christians, born again believers, sixty percent of the men sitting in the pews every Sunday <clears throat> struggle with sexual sin. <clears throat> the pastor side, about fifty percent, about fifty percent of pastors struggle with sexual sin. In sexual bondage of some nature, whether that's pornography, affairs, whatever. <clears throat> so statistically, we know that that's the case. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, we didn't do it this year, but a few years ago, we've, we come and talk to the Institute about once a year. When we've done this talk in the past, a few years ago, we sent out a survey when Institute had about 75 guys there. And we, we sent a survey out just to the Institute guys with some different questions to kind of see where are the guys at. And it came back with some really interesting 
um, numbers. Um, and then there's just real quick, 65% of the men of Fellowship Institute at that time, um, 65% of them had uh, their sexuality and sexual, sexual activities caused problems in their life, now or in the past. 65%. 28% at that time tried to stop certain sexual activities and behaviors and unable to do so. Thank you. Apparently I am coughing a lot. <clears throat> so 28% tried to stop activities and were unable and unsuccessful at that point to do so. 22% admitted to keeping secrets about their sexuality currently that they were telling nobody about. Um, and the average age of exposure to pornography was 12 years old, which is right on par with the national average. Which, if you have children or grandchildren, 12 years old sounds really, really, really young. When I think of my kids at 12, that's, that's very, very young. And it, it's trending downward because of the internet. Um, 35% of the guys uh, did not feel they had healthier, close relationships with men that knew all their secrets. And um, 18% had childhood trauma, wounds, or uh, issues from their past that they had not been able to find resolution from at all. So it's interesting that, that even in our own church, that we know that so many of us men feel alone, we feel isolated, and we don't know where to turn or what to do with this area in our life. <clears throat> so I'll ask the question again. Why does it matter for us at Institute what drove David to do what he did? <clears throat> Why did he pursue Bathsheba? Was she just really beautiful? He was bored, rich, famous, and what the heck? Why not? Or was something different driving him? <clears throat> or said another way, um, why do men today, why do we do what we do, right? If somebody is a, a, a sex addict, if they are addicted to sex, is it just about the sex? Is that what it's about? What's driving the behavior? Is it, I'm addicted to sex, and I, I just love that activity, and so that's what's driving the behavior? No, I would agree with you. Absolutely. So I think looking at David's childhood shows us a, a, a broken childhood with a lot of heart longings that were unfulfilled and a, a lot of core beliefs of I'm useless, right? Um, and accepting Christ for us today the moment we accept Christ today, or when we first did, it doesn't automatically free us from the emotional wounds of our heart. God loves us too thoroughly to just make, make the emotional wounds of our heart disappear from us. Because he doesn't want just our salvation he also wants our restoration and our healing. He wants, he wants us to experience wholeness. 
and transformative from, transformation from the inside out to the depths of our soul. And for many men, the way that we're wired, so much of our core identity, uh, consciously or unconsciously, is tied to how we view ourselves in light of our sexuality. Said another way, we are born for relationship, right? While we are prone towards isolation, we are born for relationship. And believe it or not, uh, men who don't want to express or uh, understand feelings, we are actually deeply born and wired for intimacy. We are deeply born for intimacy. And, and our heart on a core soul level longs for that. We long and are born to be known. We want to know and be known and be loved through that, right? Um, we, we, as much as we want to be strong men and self-made, most of us on a core level can identify with what Steve said about if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And yet, in our core, we're wired by God to want to know and be known and loved by God and by others. <clears throat> John Wayne somehow did not get that idea into his, his movies so much. And a lot of us grew up believing those ideas that we're not born for intimacy, that we're born to be strong and, and do good and be self-made and be successful. And ignore the longing of your heart for intimacy and relationship. Um, said another way, the fear of being known, the fear of if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me, the fear of being known can often propel us to pursue pseudo-connection over real intimacy. Momentary pleasure uh, to meet the heart longing for fulfillment, for meaning, and, and intimacy and connection with God. Uh, so sexual addiction, sexual sin, uh, being a believer in Christ who struggles with unsurrendered sexuality is no more about sex than it is an alcoholic is about alcohol or a drug addict is about drugs, Right? A drug addict isn't in, in the state of addiction to drugs because of their love of drugs, right? It's not that they just have a profound love for drugs and they love all drugs at all times. It's not about the drugs. It's about the pain and the desire to be numb. And most of us at Walking Free have spent a lot of our life dedicated to this idea of I just want to be numb and, and what better way to uh, find myself an escape than to pursue unsurrendered sexuality. So what drove David has a lot to do with what drives us. It, it is the longing of our heart for connection. And, and, and the area of sexual sin has so much shame wrapped around it that it's hard for men to talk about it. And yet... It's not about sex. It's really at its core, just like any addiction, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, it's really at its core about intimacy and a deep longing of the human heart and the heart of man 
to experience connection, intimacy, acceptance, and love. That that's what we really are all longing for, right? Um, a lot of guys would say, well, you know, I just really, um, I just have a high drive. You know, you don't get it. It's just the way God made me physically. It's just I have this high drive, right? But the reality is, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but I would bet somewhere the drive behind that sexuality is maybe 10% biological and probably about 90% emotional. That there's a lot of emotional longings of the heart that drive this mechanism in us. And, you know, the reality is uh, going on this journey is, the amazing thing is most guys come to walk free thinking, well, I just need help with my behaviors. Not really realizing the most amazing magical thing is that it is the most magical journey of your heart that God has ever put before you. And Steve, I think your testimony spoke to that about just the, the amazing wonder that God has before a man in Christ who's willing to lay down his sexuality and surrender it to God and really walk through faith in that with God. It, it's a powerful, powerful experience. And so it's the one thing, intimacy with God is the one thing that Satan wants you to not experience. He doesn't want you to, you know, I've heard it said before that before you're married, uh, Satan's all about making sure you be physical with every uh, relationship in your life. But then once you're married, Satan's all about no physical intimacy in your relationship with your spouse, right? The one thing Satan doesn't want you to experience is intimacy. He doesn't want you to experience it with um, God, with your spouse, with other godly men in a healthy way, or intimacy with your own heart, right? He wants to keep you from intimacy, which is why this journey is a journey of the heart at its core. It's, it, the issues are never the issues, right? The issues, the presenting circumstances are never the issues. It's really about what's driving the heart behind the behaviors. The, our behaviors are always the caboose of our heart. Our, our behaviors are always going to follow our heart. And our heart drives those behaviors. So until we dive into what is going on in our hearts, right, our behaviors will always be problematic. They always will be, whether it's in the area of sexual sin or anything. Until we get our hearts really tuned in with intimacy in Christ, each day, all day, our behaviors, whatever they may be, will always be problematic. So, is it possible for a man to have his life and leadership rooted in a surrendered sexuality? And what does that look like? Can we really do that? Is it really possible in this sexualized culture where uh, pornography is available 24-7 for free in a way that is completely unprecedented ever in the history of mankind. And our children are basically being raised as sex addicts before they're even 10 years old. Right? 24-7 access. Anytime, anywhere. Can a man find freedom and can a man live in freedom? Can, can, is it possible for Jesus to be strong enough and big enough 
and real enough that a man can live out of his surrendered sexuality. Is that really possible? And you say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. Uh, you don't know the double life I've, I've been living. You don't know the mask that I have on, right? And the, and the problem with masks is that it breeds a lifestyle of hiddenness and isolation. And you never, ever, ever, ever get to experience love ever in your life. You never get to experience, if you're wearing that mask, you, when, I, when I was uh, in the midst of living behind my mask, I never got to experience the real love of Christ in my life, let alone experience real love in my human relationships with my wife and family and, and friends in my life, right? It kept me uh, profoundly from intimacy, and so a lot of times we can find ourselves in a quandary where I want to be transformed, I want to be made new in Christ, but I kind of want to keep living my double life too, right? And you have to ask yourself, can God, will God, will God transform a double life? Will God do that? Will God tr- really transform me? when I'm in the midst of living a double life, or living in a hiddenness, right? My desire to be hidden, right? Uh, can I be transformed if I'm giving myself to hiddenness? Right? You go back to Genesis 3, uh, chapter 10, when the fall of mankind, and at the fall, we have the expression of the first uh, felt human emotion expressed in the Bible. It's the first human emotion ever displayed and recorded in the Bible is in Genesis 3. And a lot of us say, well, what was the first human emotion? Well, it was shame, right? But that's not actually uh, what it says. The verse prior to that says that they felt no shame, but that's telling us what they didn't feel. It's not telling us what they did feel. So in Genesis 3.10, it tells us the very first thing that, that man felt at the fall was fear. It's that God says, where are you? And he says, I hid because I was afraid. And so we hide, and we've been playing the game of hiding ever since the fall in the garden. We play the game of hiding, of believing that God is out to get me, help me. God is out to make my life unpleasant and boring and difficult, not vibrant and alive and filled with wonder. And so we cling on to unsurrendered sexuality, not trusting God that God's actually for us, like we all believe. God's for us. He's not against us. He, he came here to give us life and life to the full. There's a part of us that, eh, I don't know, God. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so in some areas. But, eh, my sexuality, I don't know. I think you kind of came here to make it really boring and unfulfilling and dull. So I don't think I'm going to give that part of myself to you. It's believing the same lie since the, the fall. Um, so, how do you find freedom? Maybe you're that guy here who's living that kind of double life. Maybe you've got stuff going on that you're not letting anybody know about. Or maybe you're one step ahead. Maybe you're letting people know about it, but you're not finding freedom. Maybe, maybe some guys know what's going on. The behaviors aren't changing. You, you still find it very problematic to find any semblance of freedom of behavior, let alone a sense inside of freedom in your heart, right? 
Maybe, maybe you're that guy, or maybe you're neither of those. But I guarantee you, if you're not either of those, I guarantee you, you know guys that are that. That you don't even know that they are that. That that's where they're really at. Because the secrecy and shame behind this particular area of sin keeps men in hiding. Right? The, old, the difference between guilt and shame. Who's heard the difference, how to, how to succinctly define the difference between guilt and shame? So guilt, guilt uh, says, I did wrong. I'm convicted because I did wrong, I need to repent and change. There's a big difference between that, which is healthy and convicting, and shame, which basically says, I did wrong because I am wrong. I did wrong because I'm, I'm bad. Something's, I did wrong not because I just did wrong. I did wrong because at my core I'm not good. I'm bad. And, and Satan wants to keep you in that place of shame. If you're struggling to find freedom, just know that Satan wants to keep you in that place of shame that says you did wrong because you are wrong. And you can't run to God with this. And you certainly can't run to other men with this because they will cast you out of the church. And they will call you a hypocrite and you will be told to leave and uh, they will, may even take your Bible from you. Okay? Stuff of that nature. So um, here's what we, we do know that does not work. Before we dive into super fast about what does work to find freedom, here's what we know does not work. And what does not work is uh, this kind of spiritually mathematical equation that is not mine. This is uh, the video that we showed is from an organization called True Faced, uh, an amazing group. Uh, they've got an amazing book called The Cure that dives into uh, grace and redemption. But they have a, uh, a formula that they put out there that basically says many of us believe the, f- the freedom from sin is found by this mathematical spiritual equation. More right behavior combined with less bad behavior will lead to godliness. That's how, that's how we get godly, right? We, we increase our good behavior. We do more good things. We give more. We serve more. We read our Bible more. We try harder. We, we get our checklist. Okay, am I doing this? Am I doing that? Am I doing this? And, and we get on board with the God of checklists and good behavior. And then we come over and we're going to combine the good behavior with a lot less bad behavior. We're going to stop whatever bad behaviors that are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up earlier. I'm going to be dedicated. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I religiously pursue um, my spiritual disciplines. And don't hear me that spiritual disciplines are bad, but it, it's the motive behind giving ourselves those things, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to um, you know, really uh, do more good things. I'm going to do good things for God. And when I do those, man, I'm going to finally come to the promised land of intimacy with God. I'm going to be connected with God, and God is going to be so happy with me. He's going to give me that feeling of connection, and it's going to be so powerful, I can't wait. But then it's like the carrot at the end of the stick that can't ever be caught. Right? It, yeah, because uh, another thing that Trueface says, I think, says it really well, is that when we get on and are motivated by the path to pleasing God more than trusting God, 
God be- switches over time from, uh, you know, the, the path changes from uh, I want to please God to what must I do to keep God pleased. And man, that's, that's not a fun place. And so contrary to what the Bible tells us who Jesus is and who God is. So that doesn't work. But here's what does work. The one thing most men in this area of struggle never do. Right? Because we prefer hiddenness to being known. Because that feels safer. What does work is this very novel idea of confession. It's this totally crazy idea that the talking it's so weird and foreign and insane to talk, to confess what is going on. This idea of full surrender, including surrendering my sexuality to God. Um, repentance. Living repentance as a lifestyle, not a one-time I'm sorry event but modeling a heart of repentance and humility. And incorporating into that this whole foreign idea of authentic, true community where people really know you. One of the best amazing things in my life is to have men in my life who really, really know me, where I'm really known in all my brokenness, in all my mess, in in all my inability and inadequacy and inconsistency where I am known and met with a living grace. It is one of the most transformative, powerful, spiritual things to be known by others. God really designed it to be that way. And that's what we like to explore at Walking Free is not just changing behaviors I mean, we could do that. We can focus just on that. But there's so much more. The behaviors have so much more behind them that we really want to work on the whole idea of transparency, of uh, keeping no secrets and no longer hiding, to no longer live in that state of hiddenness from the garden. You know, but take the desire. You know, God does have a desire in our hearts to be hidden, I really believe after the fall that there is a desire wired in us by God to be hidden. We know that we need to be hidden. The problem is we try to hide in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. We try to hide from God and run from God instead of realizing our hiddenness that God's wired in us is really meant for us to be hidden in Christ, to be set free in Christ. And and the only way to be hidden in Christ is to be fully known and fully transparent. And so we take our God-given wiring to be hidden and we run with it away from God, which keeps us from God. Instead of taking our hiddenness, our need for hiddenness and being hidden in Christ and being fully known, we really explore the ideas of authenticity, of being real and honest and true to what God is speaking into our hearts and the lies that we believe inside our own hearts. And finding God's story in the lies and replacing the lies with the truth. Um, We really explore the idea of community and grace experienced and healing through relationships. Because usually a woundedness in, in, in our sexuality is a relational wound. A wound of childhood from our parents, from abuse to whatever. And 
in a relational wound, God's really designed to have a relational solution. We try to find freedom in healing without being relational, right? But James 5.16 clearly tells us that uh, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. You know, there's something amazing about the uh, forgiveness vertically, for lack of a better phrase, between us and God is vertical. But he's so magically, powerfully healing through the transformative relationships of being known by others who love you and show you God's act of grace. So I really just want to encourage you um, to stop fighting alone. If you struggle in this area, and it can be any area, we always say that uh, sexual sin it has many branches of a tree with all one root. Whether your struggle is fantasy, pornography, lust, masturbation, whether it's uh, prostitution, whether it's extramarital affairs, uh, whether it's same-sex attraction, same-sex behaviors, uh, any, any aspect of your sexuality that you struggle to find freedom and surrender in is really what walking free is here to walk with you and find freedom in. And really want to encourage you to stop trying to fight alone. Or the men that are in your life uh, who may be struggling with this, being that safe person, you know, we talk about grace, but then we have a lot of conditions and we expect certain behaviors in order for us to extend grace. But real grace is grace without expectation. It's love without expectation. It is truly accepting us in the worst of us. We don't need grace for our best parts of us so much. We do need grace there too because even our best falls short. But what a heart really longs for is that grace and acceptance of our most hurting part to find freedom. And so be that place of grace that we often talk about to where you, you let the men know in your life that, that they can be free to openly talk about what's really bothering them. And if you're that guy living the double life, I can't encourage you enough to reach out, whether it's talking about it at your small group, whether it's reaching out to us. Um, but take steps, because the scariest thing for many men is to be really known. But it is profoundly the most liberating route that God's given us. And... Um, I just want to encourage you that freedom really is possible. One of the great, amazing honors of my life is being at Walking Free and being able to see God work in ways and break strongholds and change hearts and pour his grace out on men that are captivated by the love of Christ. And, and the road that God has... Um, is amazing. You know, David said in the Psalms, it was good for me that I was afflicted so that I might know your decrees or know your law. And I think many of us at Walking Free would say the same thing. None of us like our past stories. None of us like the brokenness we gave ourselves over to. None of us love the sin that we uh, had in our lives. None of us like the masks we wore and the double life we lived. But I think all of us would say, the amazing thing about that 
It is where we finally met the grace in the living, thriving, pursuing, endless love of Jesus Christ. And for that, we would give everything. So, um, I just want to encourage you to take steps. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Maybe for some of you, maybe that way out is making a phone call or getting in touch with us and coming to Walking Free. Maybe that way out is opening up to men in your life. Maybe that way out is the scariest route you could ever contemplate. But it's the one step where Jesus is really there for you. You're going to see on each table a card in the middle. I would love every guy to just pick that card up and put it in your wallet. If every single guy picks one up, that number is to Mike McCrum. He is our staff contact for Walking Free. You can call that number. You can also go to our website. We have a website just for our Walking Free chapter, and it's walkingfreeministry.org. So walkingfreeministry.org. You can read a little bit about us there. You can read our blog. Um, I just encourage you to take steps in whatever that may look like in your life. So. We'd call your mom. <laughs> That's step one. <laughs> yeah, and your wife. <laughs> and your dog, too, actually. We would definitely tell the dog. No, uh, so what happens if you, if you call the number on that uh, card, or if you go to our website, there's a contact desk form. That's gonna, the, the email form goes to a confidential email. Actually, it goes to my email in Mike's email, it's a confidential email, and all it's basically saying is name and phone number and contact me, and you'll get a confidential phone call. Um, if you call that number, you're going to get a voicemail, and that vo- you'll just be, you'll get a prompt saying, hey, you've reached our confidential line, leave a message, and you just leave a message with your name and number. That voicemail is going to come confidentially to us, and it does not get broadcast to the church. It comes straight to us, and you will get a call back and about 24 hours. Uh, we meet, practically speaking, we meet once a week for two hours on uh, a night here at the church, and uh, we have big group and small group time. Um, and we have about, uh, right now, we have about 40 guys a night that join us. So you are, you are not alone. You are not alone. We, we work with a lot of guys that have been in ministry uh, longer than I've been alive. So uh, we have guys that are all ages and uh, backgrounds. So if you do reach out, it's confidential. Confidentiality is huge, and uh, your story stays, uh, stays confidential. Every man has the right to share his story when and how he feels capable and ready to do so. So very good question. Any other questions? It's a really fun topic to talk about at 5 in the morning. So, yes? Tony, you were talking, uh, you started off with David and first you laughed and then you watched him. Yes. And then we looked at the fact that, you know, yes, it's a, it's a story, but 
Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Even as Paul could say it. still. And I'm paraphrasing, but he has to learn how to deal with it. Because those giants are brutal in some sense, they're passing on the same Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to comment to that because I, I've done a little bit of study on David myself, and uh, my wife has some not so nice things to say about David. Um, but the one thing I would say is put yourself in his shoes as a boy. In the story, you know, we describe, you know, with Jesse coming and uh, leaving him out and going through that special you know, sacrament and ceremony and everything. And he's just left out. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. And he was always that way. And that's why he lived his life. He was the youngest child. And in that society, you were worthless. So it wasn't just the only time, I'm sure, that he, he felt rejected. I think it was his whole life. And you look at the things that he tried to achieve. I mean, I look at my own life, and I say, well, that was me. You know, always trying to prove myself. Always trying to, ex- to succeed and exceed. Mm-hmm. You know, and never feeling worthy. And the behavior that is born out of those longings yeah. and those hurts. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Like being used as, as you were saying to um, Michelle and Mark and also when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tortured and died. And Jonathan came to him and said, if you be the son of man, Yes. Sure. How many? How many? How many wives did he have? How many concubines? Yeah. Well, we don't try to prove that. Not enough. 
Not enough. <laughs> Apparently, not enough. It's never right. enough. Right. right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Why does the insecurity that David had typically manifest itself as a sexual sin, or does it not always? Or is there any other? What's the connection between? Yeah, that's a great question. So, why does why does David's insecurity lead to sexual sin, or does it always? I don't. I don't know that. I don't know that it does for every man. Go that route. I think the predisposition of most men is that it would. We tend to, this is just me talking, I, I think that men tend to sexualize um, emotions pretty readily. And uh, we, we see that as a way of being affirmed, right? And it's a, it's a, way, it's a way that a lot of men seek affirmation and power and validation, uh, that I am loved and valuable and important and desired. And so there's a, there's a huge, um, it, it's a very easy route for a man to go down to find, uh, to experience a, a very close uh, pseudo-replica of true worth, true value, true acceptance. Um, so I'm not going to say every man does that because other guys struggle in other ways. Or, or maybe maybe they don't. Maybe it doesn't get sexualized in them, but maybe it comes out in wealth and love of money, uh, power. Look how amazing I am. The car I drive, the house I live in. There's other ways that other men will express it, but it, it's fairly common. I, I think it'd be very safe to say that predominantly, and Bob, you could speak to this. Predominantly, the uh, counseling that most men seek at the church is for you know, sexual uh, struggles. Because even in other addictions, it becomes a partner addiction. Yes. Because that's where you're naked in some sense, and you are most exposed. Yeah. Yeah, I believe we, we all have a sin bent, right, in our lives. And some of us are a little bent more towards sexual sins. Some are towards gluttony. Some are towards, you know, um, alcohol and drugs and, and, and the like. But at the at at the end of the day, it's 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 trying to fill the hole right that's here uh, with something that just doesn't yeah. never satisfy and never. it's never enough. Like you said, never enough. Yeah, never have met a man that felt that their affairs, the involvement in prostitution, the fantasy, the porn, ever, ever satisfied them. Ever, it always leaves them feeling worse every time. Amen.
A little bit of everything. <laughs> Joy, hope, excitement, sheer terror, uh, fear, uh, just deer in the headlights. We, we talk about what we call the feeling wheel, which we have this diagram. It's a wheel of all these different feelings. You pretty much do multiple full rotations. It's a little bit of everything. There, there's a profound sense of relief. There, it, the amount of energy that it takes to live a double life is profoundly, exponentially more energy than it takes to live an authentic life. And um, so there's a great sense of relief of finally, okay, Cat's out of the bag. I'm finally able to be known. The, the shame gets lifted. You're, you're beginning to be known. Uh, it's that whole process of I can finally begin to talk about this and deal with it and figure out what is really going on inside of me. So there's a lot of joy and hope in that. God really, God the comforter really shows up in a big way, in a big, 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 powerful way. But there also is a lot of fear. You're talking about a part of yourself that you've kept hidden and a lot of shame and just shock and, and a lot of realization of the cost of our sin, uh, you know, that we've gone further and gone deeper and done more than we ever thought would be part of our stories for some guys. And so there's sadness too. But I would say overall, a, a hope, a real hope, in a real vibrant community. I think, most, I think most guys would really also really speak to a sense of community and a relationship with other men that is captivating, I would say. Wouldn't, wouldn't you, would yeah. you? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say you walk in the door, sheer terror. Just, what am I going to walk into, right? I'm going to walk into, you know, my, my first thought was, man, I'm going to walk into a room with a bunch of perverts and guys who struggle, you know, pedophiles, blah, 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 whatever. And I walk into a room and I see a bunch of guys like you and like me. Um, and you walk, you walk out feeling taller, feeling not, you're still uneasy. I mean, you're still uneasy because you know, it does, it's a process to start unpacking everything because there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. And as we were talking about earlier, it's like, God only brings you as much as you can handle. Because if he dumped it all on you at one time, if he dumped everything on me that first night or those first couple of days, I'd have been done. I wouldn't have survived. So, yeah. But the community, I think one word I'd also add to that is just a sense of community. I think most men in church feel very alone. In my experience, walking with a lot of men is most men feel very alone, whether they struggle with sexual sin or not. Most men struggle with feeling alone and unknown. And um, I think the other thing that Tony and I both agree on is that after being in Walking Free and other groups that are like Walking Free, being in another men's group is frustrating because the authenticity that, that, that yeah. is shared amongst the men, you know, is just incredible. And you want that in every relationship that you have after that, and it is so difficult to find. Because we all know what it's like to be in a small group table at a church setting and be like, okay, I'm going to kind of tiptoe out and be a little bit honest, and you say just a little bit about, like, which is one-sixteenth of what's really going on, and it's crickets. Like, okay, guy just broke the guy code. He's talking about that stuff. Ah, everybody ignore him. <laughs> He'll shut up real soon. But it's, 
it's amazing to have to have to be known is amazing. Absolutely. It's very, very true. Thank you. <laughs> no, guys, I, I really do appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> talking about steps and that first step, um, we got about 10 minutes left. Um, really want you to have time to just talk at your tables. Again, each one of us is no different than any other man who has ever walked the face of this earth. The first step is the hardest. So take time to think through, pray through, share what is that step that God is leading you to take to find that greater freedom that he has available for you. It's there. Like Tony said, the hardest thing in the world is to stay hidden and to think that I'll just take care of it on my own. That's not how God created us to live. He created us for himself and for each other. And if you are not in a relationship, Crawford said this a few weeks ago, if you are not in a relationship where you have this level of openness and transparency with other men, who can walk to the cross with you, you are in danger. And not only you, but all of those around you who fall under your influence, your wife, your kids, your family, your friends, because that's not how God designed us to live. And speaking from my own experience, it's easy to even be in relationships of accountability and still not go all the way there. And to convince yourself, I've done enough. So this is the last time we're going to meet this semester. We'll come back on the 17th of January. Um, let's do business with the Lord and with each other. And let's share. What is that one step that we can take in obedience um, to find the life that Christ purchased for us on the cross? Blessings.